at Sidon in 10, um, and connecting that with the, the order of Melchizedek in, in Hebrews 7. This week we uh, take a step back in the book of Psalms and we're, we're looking at Psalm 22. Um, the reading, you might instantly be aware of some of the, the lines and verses and phrases that jump out to you, that remind you of Jesus. And we're going to talk about those things um, as we go through this. Um, I don't know if you've been around in church long enough. I grew up in, in a church and we had, uh, we obviously went from hymn books, um, big technological advancement to the overhead projector. I don't know if, if anybody remembers overhead projectors. Um, it became an essential tool for worship. Uh, you, you know, flick it on and the slides come out and you know, big, big noisy bits of acetate. And, uh, I remember occasionally serving, you know, sat behind his chair doing the acetates, you know, a weighty responsibility it was to be the overhead projector operator. No ministry quite like it in the church. Um, and on our journey, journey through the narrative of scripture, scripture this big, big story of scripture, of scripture um, we can't, we can't pick, pick up the Psalms, the Psalms without, without giving them due attention, attention to their, their original, original context, context and the authors of the original messages. messages. Um, and, and we're told this is the Psalm of David, and that's where we begin, understanding its original context original authorship. But of but course, course we're layering, layering this, we're looking at this through the layer, layer of Jesus, Jesus and how we might, might discover Jesus in the Psalms. Psalm. So, so I want to think thinking about Psalm 22, 22 like, like those acetates that we used, used to lay, lay perhaps still, still do from time to time, time, time. We lay these acetates on, on the overhead projector. And if we layer them up, I don't know if you ever did this before, or you're scribbling on the top of the plastic sheets, that we get this increased level of detail by adding, adding layers on top of the other. And I just want to to kind of think of Psalm 22 and our approach to Jesus in the Psalms through Psalm 22 in this kind of way. So we can lay acetates, we can increase the depth of image and the, the level of detail. And we can lay down the words of David on the overhead projector. And we can draw and appreciate the detail and the, the story and the context behind that, just as it is. But then we can lay down this, this extra acetate, this extra layer on the top where those same words, the same words of David find greater and deeper, more dramatic meaning when we find them on the lips of Jesus. Now I'll be doing some thinking, I love this kind of thing, just breaking down the psalm into its kind of sections and its, its structure. Um, and I'll put this up on the screen, but we've, we've got the um, a bit of a structure here that looks quite colourful, looks quite complicated. We're not necessarily going, going to go into it, but uh, I thought perhaps if you want to take a little screenshot of this on your camera or um, you want to come back and reflect on this in its own way at a different time, I thought this might be quite helpful for us. But just looking through here, we've got this um, these few different rhythms that I think we have through Psalm 22. There's, there's the rhythm of theme. Um, so we go from, from total abandonment through to the idea of God being faithful. Uh, to public disgrace uh, and then it kind of centers on this section here of total dependency and then again we go through the cycle of public disgrace and faithfulness of God to total deliverance of the note on which the psalm um, uh, ends so we've got this, this rhythm this uh, of theme um, and the second we've got this rhythm of focus as well we've got these different kind of emphasis on the pronouns between the you and the me in section D there's a me and a you together uh, and then it finishes on a, a me and a you and a them, and it becomes a more wide, all-encompassing kind of uh, theme and address. So we've got rhythm of theme, rhythm of focus, 
Um, and then I just picked up as I was going through this, this rhythm of experience versus faith, the kind of the here and now, what, what am I enduring, what am I going through, versus this, this picture of faith and what I'm hoping for and believing in. So that was the kind of theme that I just picked up and the way it's broken down. But in short, a, a summary of, of Psalm 22, um, it's, it's an anguished prayer of King David. King David being a victim of, of tremendous suffering and torment and isolation and helplessness. And at the same time, it's a prayer shaped by this hopeful expectation that God has been and will be faithful to deliver him and to establish the, the kingdom of heaven on earth. So we're going to work our way through this psalm, through Psalm 22. We're going to interweave the, the prayer of David, these words of King David and the reutterance and the, the kind of the reimagining of these words, the same words that were shared by Jesus 1,000 years later as he hung dying on a cross. So we're going to use those different sections, the breakdown of the psalm, and we're going to just go through them stage at a time. Um, and we're going to look at, begin by looking at this phase A. Um, and you'll notice straight away that the psalm begins with three accusations. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my words of groaning? And you see as well that these three accusations are accompanied, they're, they're accompanied by three cries to God. My God, my God. And a little bit later, oh my God. And we can see that David has the confidence and the intimacy to challenge God and to cry out to God. And this is, this is what lament looks like. This is what a lot of the Psalms look like. That in the bleakness, for David at least in this situation here, he is persistent and he's hopeful. Verse 2 infers to us that David he has been crying out day and night. Yet God is stubbornly silent. I'm sure a few of you have clocked already that the first half of this first verse, they're the words that Jesus uses to cry out to God as he's hanging on the cross. And so let's lay this, uh, this Jesus acetate down upon the words of David. Let's, let's see what that looks like. So Mark's Gospel tells us that um, from 12 noon until 3 p.m., this is during Jesus' crucifixion, that darkness covered the whole land. Three hours, Jesus had been nailed to a cross. And he was left bleeding and in agony as, as a, pub, a public um, spectacle of humiliation. And for the most part, I'm sure we can all try and imagine that Jesus was in a state of uncontrollable, helpless suffering. He was wrestling internally with the trauma, but he also had that excruciating pain, that bodily pain and the imminence of his death. Where was his heavenly father? Where was God in this? Where were his friends and his disciples and his followers? And of course, at this point, the accusation that Jesus launches at the father is valid, isn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only hours earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was, was pleading for rescue and uh, from that moment, God had not delivered him yet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the, the major and perhaps obvious difference between Jesus and David is that Jesus was the Word in the beginning. 
Jesus has eternally been one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God. David, King David lived and he died like the rest of us, but Jesus, Jesus was the one through whom all things were made. Jesus was the light of all mankind. Jesus had known perfect eternal union with the God, the head, with the Father, with the Spirit. And of course, it was one thing for Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, to be born as a human being, to lower himself to our status, to step down from his heavenly throne and share the world with us that he created. But to then not be recognised by the world he created, to come into the world but not be received by those he created, to bring and inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth and bring salvation for all people, only to be scorned and executed by his people on the Roman cross. Jesus had been utterly rejected by his creation and his beloved heavenly father. So this, for Jesus, this was absolute forsakenness. Nobody in the whole of human history has experienced abandonment in the way that Jesus did as he hung, dying on the cross. But why use the words of David? You know, why was Jesus this intentional and prophetic in such a state of agony? You know, surely he, he wouldn't be thinking logically. And if that was me, I'd be screaming, I'd be swearing, I'd be losing composure. But Jesus chooses his words carefully. Jesus recites the words of the great king of Israel. And in doing so, he tightens those guy ropes. He makes the connection. He emphasizes his connection to the historic figures of the Jewish faith, to the ancient covenants between God and his chosen people. Jesus' words are his own. But they also cry of forsakenness for all humanity. There's a shared statement here. For all who are lost in this perpetual cycle of suffering and sin and detachment from the living God. And so then we move on to, to this next section, section B, where the emphasis shifts more from uh, away from me and to you. And in the midst of his suffering, David says, yet you, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. And so there is a reason to believe. There is a reason to trust. Why? Because in the imminence of suffering, we can recall the stories of God's faithfulness and deliverance throughout history. God has proven himself before. We pick up our Bibles, we read stories from church history as well, and we find that God is consistently good. And God is consistently faithful to his people. He doesn't let us down, he doesn't let us go. And so when we did lay down this, this Jesus acetate again, for Jesus, he was leaning upon the familiar yet distant arms of his heavenly father. Throughout all eternity, until this point, Jesus had not known the utter silence nor the rejection of the father. And so in, in a way, this was uncharted territory for God. The vocation that Jesus chose to bear, because he is faithful and devoted to the mission of God in saving 
all of humankind from our brokenness, from our frailty, from our sin. And here we see that the present state of distress, this imminent kind of happening right now experience of suffering and, and distress, colliding with this greater and more powerful person of God, the one who is mighty to save. And so the focus shifts from I to you. And David had to contend for this and wrestle with his circumstances to reorientate his gaze, to, to fix his gaze upon the Lord God of Israel. And likewise, Jesus had to come to terms with the, with the pain, with the anxiety and the hopelessness of existence apart from his father. Of course, we will never truly understand what this means, but we can observe and we can recognise that Jesus chose to plunge to the lowest depths of human existence, that we might all be drawn up with him again to eternal life through the power of his resurrection. And then we move to section C, this concept of public disgrace. And these few verses again, they, they turn inwardly and they begin to reflect on the rejection of other people. So we're told that David was scorned, he was despised and mocked and insulted to such a degree that David believes himself to be less than human. The abuse that he was enduring has degraded him, it's dehumanised him. What is more pathetic, this is how David describes himself, what's more pathetic and insignificant and powerless than a worm? That's how David chooses to dis describe himself, because he's in a public state of disgrace. What's crucial for us to know, and I was really interested just to, to pick this up, is that the scorn and the abuse that is targeting David is actually honing in, honing in on his relationship in the Lord and his trust in the Lord God of Israel. And he's quoting here from the psalm, these are the words of those mocking and abusing David. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. David's suffering must be justified because the Lord has not saved him. If God really does delight in David, then let the Lord deliver him. And so this is an attack upon David's faith. It's an attack on his worldview. It's an attack on the credibility of his relationship with the living God. And by calling himself a worm, we know that the mockery and the insults, that they've actually succeeded in grinding David to a pulp. This is a man overcome by shame. And when we then skip forward in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark and we lay, lay down that Jesus acetate, again, we, we read the same things happening to Jesus. We read that the, the Romans had written the King of the Jews on a plaque above his head, degrading his true identity and make, making a mockery of him. The two thieves that were crucified either side of Jesus, they shook their heads and they cried out from their own crosses, come down from your cross and save yourself. The Jews who were there in the crowd as well said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And even considering this radical humility of Jesus, the humility of who Jesus was, Jesus' self-respect was crushed. A rabbi, a teacher who professed to be one with the Father, who performed miracles, who taught with authority, who 
gained this mass following, was now ridiculed and abandoned to death on a cross. And this is absolute humiliation, isn't it? Utter public disgrace. Jesus, one with the Father, the incarnate Son of God, a worm, not a man, scorned by people and despised by people. And then we arrive at section D, the, the centrepiece, if you like, of, of this psalm that I've called Total Dependency. And this is where the you and the I, they, they collide. The existence of me meets my dependence on you. It's an I-thou kind of relationship here. The theme changes quite dramatically. David recognises that it was the Lord who knitted him together and brought him out of the womb. Reminds us of Psalm 139, doesn't it? It was the Lord who called him and extended him grace. God brought him into being. And therefore, David has no choice but to trust in God to rescue and protect him and deliver him in this time of distress. All that he is and all that he will be is dependent solely upon the mercy of God. David recognises and he says these words. He says, there is no one to help. There is no one to help. And again, as we lay down that Jesus acetate on top of these words, here I'm, I'm forced to think about the nativity of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. That miraculous conception of Mary through the Spirit. The baby John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb when the pregnant Mary visited. The song of Zechariah prophesying over the fetus of Jesus that he would be a prophet of the Most High who would bring about the knowledge and salvation and forgiveness of sins. The boy Jesus in the temple growing in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and people. You see, Jesus was fully reliant, wasn't he, upon the direction and the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit in his life. In Jesus' own life, in his ministry, it was directed and protected and sustained and sanctified as well through his conception, his birth, his early childhood, his adult life and his ministry, through his own obedience to his Father. And the power of the spirit within him but the heart cry of this psalm is helplessness isn't it helplessness david and jesus were both in a position of absolute helplessness where absolutely nothing but the intervention of god would suffice and when you're at that level the only humanly possible thing to do is to cry out to look outside of the self and seek some greater source of power and hope. And for David and in, indeed for Jesus as well, this was the Holy One, the praise of Israel. So we've, we've passed the ark now, we've, we've passed through the centre point and we kind of return back around again here. Section C1. Again, we, we look at public disgrace and it's, it's very experiential and me focused again. And the next six verses of, of this section, they dip again into that reality of the human experience, lived reality, the scenes of public disgrace. And like the mighty beasts from the fertile lands of Bashan, David is, is surrounded by enemies. And I love the, the poetic imagery that David uses here. He says, he's poured out like water. 
His bones are out of joint and his, uh, his heart has turned to wax and melted within him. And bones and heart together, they indicate that the entirety of his being, you know, his, him as a person is disintegrating here. And now, even before we lay that acetate of Jesus down again, we read some of the most apparently clear connections from the crucifixion narrative of Jesus. We hear about the dividing of clothes and casting of lots. In, in Mark 15, 24, we're told that the Roman soldiers, they divided up the clothes of Jesus and they cast lots to see what they would each get. And John quotes from Psalm 22 in his gospel, saying, making this direct connection with the passion of Jesus. And then we get these words, the, my dry mouth and the dust of the earth. And again in John 19, verse 28, he says that Jesus is thirsty. He's dying, but he's thirsty. And the soldiers lift this sponge to his mouth, soaked in, in cheap wine vinegar. And once again, John is eager to show this element of Jesus' crucifixion being fulfilled. It's, it's a fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament scriptures. And then we talk about pierced hands and feet, and it doesn't seem to get more obvious than this, does it? This is the essence of crucifixion. Nail-pierced hands and feet, the wounds which even marred the resurrected body of Jesus that became evidence to his disciples that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And it feels unimaginable to us, doesn't it? But the viciousness of the ancient world that David lived in and the excruciating pain of Roman crucifixion were the first-hand experiences of David and Jesus. That, that was their lived reality. And when we read through scripture, we can be in danger sometimes of assuming that these passages and the words of this psalm, they're just some kind of poet, poetic hyperbole, some kind of exaggeration. But we cannot forget the price Jesus paid on the cross. We can't undermine how much pain and, and suffering and agony he went through. By laying down his own life, he determined that your life and, and my life are worth giving, giving up everything for. And we turn again then to the faithful nature of God and the comfort to be found externally in the person of there is a tenacity in David's faith. There's a determination to see God as faithful and powerful and actually in control of circumstances. And perhaps the key verse here is in verse 24, where David says, For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And I think this is remarkable, isn't it? Because this confident statement is actually the opposite of David's lived experience. At the beginning, he's accusing God of, of silence and total abandonment. Yet this statement of faith here is that God sees and God knows, that God is present and attentive, that he will deliver him. And you see, it reminds us of what true faith is, doesn't it? That true faith, faith is actually found in the face of silence. Believing God is who he says he is when he's silent and distant and inaccessible and he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. That's when we find our true faith. 
And of course, this was the faith that Jesus modelled throughout his passion. Right until his muscles gave way to fatigue and he couldn't breathe anymore. This was the faith that Jesus proclaimed and embodied right to the very end. And so we return to the bottom of the ark. A1. Total deliverance. And we assume as we read this psalm and as we read the next psalm and as we continue through the psalms, as we look through the stories of, of the kings of Israel, we assume that for David his circumstances changed. Psalm 22 wasn't the end for him. He perhaps you know, was rescued, he was delivered and he lived to see another day. And for Jesus, when we lay down that Jesus acetate, the hours on the cross for Jesus, they proved to be fatal. They were his last hours. And so when we think about it like that, the, the psalm itself takes on a more devastating meaning. In the scope of his earthly life and his ministry, Jesus' cries and prayers while he was on the cross, they, they weren't answered. He lingered in this state of total abandonment and utter humiliation and public disgrace until he breathed his last breath. But of course, we know when we read through the Gospels and the, the story of the New Testament that for Jesus, death wasn't the end. It didn't end on the cross. And the prophetic vision of David in verses 26 through to 31, it tells of God's saving agenda for the entire world, where all the nations will bow before the God of Israel. The psalm which began with such a personal focus, such a one-on-one -on -one personal focus, now bursts open in these final few verses and he begins to speak of all people, of all nations. And it's a vision, isn't it, of, of God's kingdom come, the reality longed for by God's people throughout covenant history. And not only that, but he begins to speak of a salvation that is discoverable in posterity where future generations and People yet unborn will hear and know the grace and the deliverance of God Almighty. And the key to understanding this, and the, the key to unlocking all this, is when we begin to think about Jesus Christ. Is that Jesus alone is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so the closing words of Psalm 22, they echo Jesus' own words on the cross in John's Gospel. It is finished. Jesus died victoriously. He experienced total abandonment and utter disgrace and humiliation on the cross. But at the end, total deliverance was his story. Resurrection was his story. And so again we return to this theme of dependency. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. It's his breath that's in our lungs. And it's only through Jesus and the, the intervention of the cross that we are and can ever be rescued from ourselves, from sin and from death. And it's this, universe, this universal invitation of salvation that has arrived in Jesus Christ, to which we are 
called to personally respond to in faith and then to bear witness to in the rest of the world. And when we flick forward a little bit more in our Bibles, we, we end up on that last book of the Bible, Revelation. This, these are the words that the Lord says to us. He says, I am making everything new. And we get these words again. It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And what David did not see as he wrote these words down, what David did not see was the very thing that Jesus accomplished. He has done it. It is finished. It's the complete work of the cross. And this is perhaps the most significant detail of that top acetate layer. That what David longed to see, what David was thirsty and hungry to see fulfilled, Jesus brought about and completed. But of course, in our chapter here and now of the story of God, now we join in to some degree, don't we, with the, the words of David, the longing and the praying of David, watching for this final glorious return of Jesus Christ. Where with all God's people, down the ages, throughout the generations, we will experience the totality of God's deliverance and power and the renewal of all things. And so here's the final thought that I want to leave you with today. And it's this. Christian hope is external. Our past and our present and our future lies in the otherness of God. The Bible and our own life experiences, they remind us that suffering and difficulty is an inescapable part of what it means to be human. We can't avoid those things. And of course, David and Jesus, they had this first-hand human experience of what terror and fear looks and feels like but what the bible teaches us what the the lives of david and jesus teach us is that we are called to constantly and habitually fix our gaze upon the one who is mighty to save the one who is faithful to deliver perhaps at this point in human history we have we have this better vantage point than David, if we think about the train journey again, where David was looking forward into the future, we're looking back at this story of God and uh, we read about Jesus through the Gospels, but we also have this future perspective and hope too. We have that gift of knowing and reading about the person and, and the conduit of our redemption, the hope and the invitation of eternal life and peace with God through the person of Jesus. And we look ahead to its final completion in the second coming. But through all the anxiety and the disorientation of life in, in your relationships, in, in your work, in your family life, in your finances, in politics and in global affairs, in the climate crisis and, and the world around us, we are called to have faith in the ultimate sufficiency of God. We're called to be utterly dependent upon him. As Hebrews 11 says, faith is being sure of what we hope for 
and certain of what we do not see. This is the faith that Jesus carried with him to the cross. And it's the faith that he bore until his final breath. And that's what I mean here, is that the true hope is external. It lies beyond ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There's no effort or work or rhythm of life that will bring about our salvation and, and ultimate hope. And the examples of David and Jesus show us that when life plummets to the lowest level, when we face the bleak emptiness of ourselves, we can only reach outside of ourselves to something greater. We are confronted, bombarded in our modern world with a narrative that tells us that we're self-sufficient, that we're here by accident and we make our own way through life. That we are in control, that we call the shots, that we don't bow down to anything other than ourselves. But this psalm is a stark reminder that total self-sufficiency, that whole ideology is flawed. There are moments in life, perhaps you've been through some recently, where the only option, the only thing that's humanly possible is to cry out, is to look outside of ourselves and see a greater source of power, to seek out a greater source of power. And for David and for Jesus, this was the Holy One, the praise of Israel. And so for us today, we need to run to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of faith. We need to repent and have trust in him that he has the power to save. You see, we aren't responsible for our, our own existence. We weren't here by accident. God has brought us into being. But neither, therefore, are we responsible for our own healing and our, our own salvation. And as I was thinking about this and praying about this, and as I wanted to think about this kind of response, I just really sense that God wants to release us today from that burden in the name of Jesus. That he, if you have been working tirelessly, perhaps, to improve yourself, to heal your wounds, to overcome your shame, to define yourself, to work out which way to go, to get the best grades, to earn the best salary, to be the best person you can be. I want you to hear the good news today. That only Jesus, Jesus alone, is the way the truth and the life and you will only find true hope in him come to him today